Welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast, where we listen to and learn from the people who are disrupting business, culture, and life. Here's your host, Rob Schwartz, CEO of TBWA Shiat Day, New York. We're here with Nancy Kane. She's a historian and a professor at the Harvard Business School. She's written a new book on leadership called Forged in Crisis. Nancy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. It's really, really great to see you. So, wow, this book's really pretty amazing and so timely. Yeah. I didn't plan that, but here it is, when the universe decided it was meant to be out in the world. Yeah. I mean, it's as we get into it, you'll you'll see why this thing is uh, so timely. You know, one, one thing I was, it's, I mean, why don't you talk a little bit about the five people you write about, you know, like why and how you got there? Sure. So it's five stories. The first one is Ernest Shackleton, um, which many of your listeners will know by all, from all kinds of sources, the Antarctic explorer who in early 1915 found himself stuck in the ice with 27 other men and no ways and no text messages and somehow the, a new mission to get them home alive against all odds. The second story, a familiar one, but I believe I'm, I've added some important new layers to it, is the story of Lincoln, who found himself in a different kind of perfect storm mm. uh, in 1862, trying to lead the nation through the Civil War and ultimately to change the nation as he did that. The third story is a little bit l- less well-known, but very much uh, a bookend to the Lincoln story, a critical bookend, as important as the Lincoln story. And that is the, the story of Frederick Douglass, the escaped slave and incredibly important abolitionist who did so much to actually make the transformation of America, the ending of slavery, possible on the Mm. ground. The fourth story is probably the least well-known to Mm. at least North American listeners, and that is the story of a pastor in Germany in the 1930s named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who became an incredibly important resistor and activist against Hitler, ultimately, and this is the only spy story Mm. in the book, Mm -hmm. ultimately becoming a double agent within the German government trying to assassinate Hitler and overthrow the Third Reich. And the fifth story, and in many ways for me, the, the most touching story, and I fell in love with each of these Mm. people, is that of the only woman in the book, Rachel Carson, a shy and retiring, very brave, very determined woman who in 1962 published a book called Silent Spring about the dangers of widespread untested pesticide use. And it was a book that truly rocked the world Mm. and laid the foundations for the modern environmental movement. So five people, different walks of life, different missions, all of whom made themselves capable of doing extraordinary things in moments of ongoing disruption. Mm. That's the basic glue of the book. Well, that that's going to work well for the show. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, what's interesting, I, I read this somewhere, I saw it. You said that uh, as you were writing that Lincoln, you were going through you know your own uh, you know disruptions and, and different crises, and there was something about Lincoln that kind of spoke to you. And maybe talk a little bit about your relationship with Lincoln. So I will. And and it it raises the point implicitly, Rob, that disruptions are great classrooms Mm. for ourselves as well Mm. as our work, as well as our businesses, as well as the other organizations we care about. And in my case, the disruptions took a series of life-changing forms. They happened very quickly and in fast frequency to each other. One, the first one was my father dropped dead. He was a young man. Mm. My mother fell apart very quickly. Uh, A few months later, my husband, to whom I'd been married 14 years, walked out the door with no warning um, and then wanted a 
to claim all the the Harvard retirement money, which was all the assets that I and he had accumulated. Mm. Uh, And hard on that, I developed precancerous symptoms. And then following fast on that, with no risk factors, I actually developed breast cancer. Mm. And I was just coming through that, getting the divorce finalized after a couple of years, and I got breast cancer again against all kinds of odds, said the oncologist. And in the middle of this, uh, about two crises in, I found myself, as many, many of us know, when you don't, when you're in a crisis, you don't sleep so well. So mm-hmm. I found myself at 2 a.m. staring at the ceiling, wide awake, and I reached one de- night for a collected volume of Lincoln's writings. I had never read much about Lincoln. I was mm-hmm. trained as a European historian. And I started reading from some of his last writings, his mm-hmm. second inaugural, all the way backward into time to the beginning of his presidency. And I remember very clearly, just a few nights in, thinking to myself, almost saying out loud, Miss Nancy, you think you have problems, girl. This guy had much bigger problems. And so he became a kind of ballast, his experience, Mm. and what he made of himself and therefore what he made of the extraordinary disruption in the external world of the Civil War became a classroom for me. Mm. And so the book came out of this searing question, which is, What do leaders, any of us, in any of the ways we lead, because we're all leaders in different ways, what do we do when we find ourselves in the midst of great, unexpected, and often very difficult disruption? Mm. What's the emotional experience, and how do we learn and grow from that? And then what's the impact of that growth on on Mm. our external action? And I think what's really interesting about the book, talk about, you know, being a disruptive kind of book, it's a history book without question. Uh, it reads uh, like a novel. I mean, I think your writing is just so riveting. And then there are these moments yeah. where you stop and you say, hey, you know what? Let's pause here for a second. Here's a lesson. You know, the care and feeding of yourself, yeah. uh, how you show up, you know, like yeah. with Shackleton, for example, yeah. uh, leaning into the fear in, 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 the, in the Douglas story. I think that's a pretty disruptive book because suddenly yeah. it's it's like your classroom. Yeah. So that, that comes out of... Uh, you know, not coincidentally, a lot of work I did, and I say this in the acknowledgments, quite honestly, with you and your colleagues at Omnicom, Mm. in Omnicom University, all those years of teaching people, in many cases, some history cases, Mm. right, or the history of an agency, and then watching how out of people's absorption of those moments, we made lessons together, you know, notes to self, takeaways, as we called them. And so I, I got very used to in my own adult life and in the making or the forging of me as a scholar, I got very used to mining Mm. history for its pragmatic lessons for today. And so in some ways, I'm not sure I could write just a straight history book anymore (laughs) because I want, you know, I want the past to help us. I want us to milk it and squeeze it and use it absorb it and then go, wow, there's something in here for me. I think even... And so that's it. So it is disruptive, but it is also who I am. Well, it's very interesting because I think it's a new kind of form because... Uh, as I'm, you know, going through your book, I'm reading the um, uh, the Chernow Grant book. Yeah, so it's a fantastic, fantastic hit. history. Unbelievable, but great. But it's interesting because I'm sort of aching now in the Grant book. Where's the lesson, <laughs> right. Ron? What can we learn from, you know, from Ulysses? <laughs> I feel the same way. I just finished it. Yeah. Right. Because he's there's you can imagine lots of lessons there. Yeah. But again, I think it's an unusual sort of circumstances where a PhD, card-carrying PhD in history finds themselves growing up in a place like the classroom at OU mm. or even in the classroom at HBS, but even more so in executive learning environments because executives are there to take stuff away, yeah. make it their own, and then use it the next day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the magic of this, uh, your Lincoln moment. And in the class, uh, for those of you who've experienced it, I mean, Nancy 
kind of brings you into Lincoln's world uh, in this classroom. And there's a lot of um, simpatico, I think, people in you know, the classroom feel when you kind of say, hey, he wakes up at 3 o'clock in the morning and he starts pacing. <laughs> right, because he's, he, he's anxious, he's confused, sometimes he's terribly depressed. Yeah. But like all of us, he has these dark nights of the soul where he's like, what in the hell am I doing? And the ability to relate to someone we think of as heroic in, the, in, in terms of their very accessible humanity, mm. I think is really important. It's mm. important whether we're dealing with our teams. It's important whether we're dealing with our clients. It's important when you're dealing with your students. It, it's just, it's very, very powerful. Yeah. Now, the other big disruption was Rachel Carson. I think and that story is, uh, I mean, it's like, a, it's like a flower in concrete, you know? You're yeah. like, wow, great. Where, where, where did this thing come from? You know, was, and again, she's the only woman in the book. Right. We're in a Me Too moment. Yep. Uh, so I felt her story all of a sudden resonating so loudly. I, I, I agree. And, and in, I, I say in the introduction that, you know, we need to shed some of our kind of cliches or you know, hackneyed ideas about what real leadership is, which one of which is, God, real leaders are charismatic, mm. hard driving, you know, incredibly loquacious people. She was not a public speaker. She was not a hard driving person. She was a complete introvert. Uh, she was very brave. Mm. She was very strong. Those are important, I think, yeah. fundamentals for great leadership. But I, you know, someone as quiet and shy and retiring as she turns out, arguably, arguably to be as powerful as Lincoln. Oh, yeah. Or as Shackleton was to his men. Mm-hmm. Or as Bonhoeffer has been for the people he led, as well as countless generations that have absorbed his teaching and, and his life as, as full of leadership lessons, as Douglas was. And so she, to me, given her particular you know, crises, which the most significant of which was, as many people know who know her life, was she finished this book. She really wrote most of it battling very aggressive cancer. Mm-hmm. So she knew she didn't have much time left. Mm-hmm. So the book and the writing of it, you know, in the midst of all kinds of threats from chemical companies, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, et cetera, is an act of just sheer bravery mm-hmm. that she has to keep summoning up because she's racing the clock. Yeah. And, and in the book, I try and detail how often she falls to her knees and then just like each of these people, just like all of us at our, at what seems like our most vulnerable moments, we get up just an inch or two off the mm-hmm. floor and we go on. And, and and as Frost, Robert Frost said, and that makes all the difference. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, her story, the, the um, kind of the, like the chronic health issues of her family, she's yeah. got to get through that. Yep. And I think you make another interesting point about she's also the... Um, uh, she's the homemaker. Yeah. You know, almost the, I don't know if that's a natural thing, but there was something about. Oh my God, yeah. You know, she had to make sure that, you know, her nephew and everyone was fed and then she could do her stuff. You know, I, I've said this a couple of times. I'm so glad you brought it up, Rob, because she's carrying, in some ways, this is changing slowly, but it is changing, a particularly female set of responsibilities. Mm. Not only does she have to get the laundry out at work, she always, she works from a young age on to earn a living. For a large part of her 20s and 30s, she's supporting her birth family. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, into her 50s, she's supporting parts of her birth family. She adopts her grandnephew right. at the age of 50 when he's five. <laughs> and so she's, you know, she's going to the office. She's at the, in many, for many, many years, the Fish and Wildlife Service. She's coming home to put dinner on the table, you know, take care of the young people in the household. Some, at one point, take care of her brother and sister and father and mother and her sister's kids. 
put some laundry in the ringer washer, and then at 11 o'clock get down to trying to do her writing. And, you know, the sweat equity that so many women today can relate to, that's mm. so much a part of this story, in the face of all this disruption, is really quite significant. Ultimately, a, very, a set of very valiant acts. And we don't use that word when we talk about women's work, which is big and, 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 and involves many different kinds of tasks, but it is. And that's part of the story here. Yeah. The the other thing too that was fascinating was um, she, you know, you, you have to put yourself in the mindset. So it's the post World War II. It's the fifties. You know, progress is our favorite word. Uh, you know, man can do anything, and she's the first one to say, "Hey, hang, hang on, hang on, guys, let's not try to control everything. Yeah. This thing, nature, it needs to be sustained." This to me, when I read that, I felt that was a revolutionary idea at that time. Absolutely, I mean. You know, as Linda Lear, who's the most famous biographer of Carson, has said, you know, at that moment, science was king, mm. science was male, and science was sets of individuals in established institutions. She is she breaks all those rules. Talk about disruption, right? right? right she's a woman. Right. <laughs> she's she's a scientist, but she's working alone, right? And and she, which is something people women just didn't do in this context and she's she is really to 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 cut to your important point she is really questioning the paradigm of unchecked untested un you know unenlightened or un uh, unreflective scientific progress qua progress she's saying wait a minute yeah Man, man needs to make all kinds of scientific discoveries, but we need to understand what those discoveries mean for the both strong and at the same time vulnerable set of interconnections that constitutes the global, you know, what today we call the global environment, she right. called the system of nature that, mm. by the way, sustains all life. Yeah. So she was ultimately making a self-interested argument, but this argument says, and we could we could apply it today to our cell phone addiction. All progress and embracing it without without reflection, without testing, right? Full throttle doesn't always make such good sense, yeah. right? In lots of different dimensions. And yeah, and I think that was also very powerful. Is that again, not to be so propagandistic on on for, on disruption, but here she was at one point a rapturous writer of nature that's right. that uh, yeah, that's it was almost said. but it was almost like uh you know she it was like fantasia right. and people yeah, would yeah, read yeah. her work it's and be beautiful. like you know oh my god you know I nature... can't wait to go to the ocean right and <laughs> yeah, look, right, right exactly. understand the ocean in these exactly. rapturous terms she makes you want to go to the yeah. ocean yeah. and then suddenly she's like guys wait a minute right. you know silent spring when, when i and i love the title you know right. the the chill of that title uh and the fact that she just starts you're not going to hear the birds right, and she starts taking away Absolutely, and describing in careful, documented detail. I mean, one of the really interesting kind of backstories of this chapter is how carefully she did her homework. Mm. Oh, boy. Mm. I mean, it was just extraordinary how carefully she did her homework before she wrote a sentence. But she's describing, for example, for the listeners that don't know Sonsbring, you know, birds dropping out of trees in areas where they'd sprayed DDT widely, you know, dogs dying, cows dying, yeah. um, you know, flora and fauna and crops affected so it's you know she's she's describing something not only that isn't rapturous and isn't and isn't in some sense about the majesty of nature it's about the onslaught yeah right of man's unchecked unquestioning embrace of progress against nature and ultimately the point of the book isn't isn't just that you know that the that the diaspora of the natural world sustains us all, it, it, or that we owe an obligation to sentient beings, 
um, of all kinds, right, as part of that. But it's also and and that ultimately all this unchecked progress may not be so good for our health. Mm-hmm. There are two chapters right, right. in the book our, our listeners will be curious to learn that are about cancer and yeah. its relationships to pesticides. Right. A set of relationships that has been documented in different instances into our time. But the, the most important part of the book, and this is what I find so stirring right now, is ultimately the call to citizen awareness. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's not that she's just saying this and saying, learn this. She's saying we are called to act. She has this wonderful line at the beginning of the book that could have been written in 2000 or in January of 2018 right and it, it is have we fallen into a mesmerized state that lets us accept what we know to be detrimental to ourselves and our communities because we have seemingly lost the will to demand what is good that's what I feel about Trump well, I think a lot of us feel that right now about what's happening to our country. Yeah. Everything from the debasement of public life to, dem- to assaults on civil liberties to what are we becoming? How is this current set of leaders defining what it means to be American? Very few of us think the answers to that are good ones. So, yes, have we lost the will to demand what is good? Well, I, again, so I, I think when you look at this book about uh, you know, these, these, these profiles of leadership, I was I was uh, watching something you had been on, where you talked about this definition of leadership yeah. from uh, David Foster Wallace. So you were pretty good about just spitting it. I don't know if you remember. Uh, oh, but of course, no, because it, it impressed me so much. It's what I read it actually. It's from a it's from an article that he wrote on John McCain's first presidential run. Uh, in 2000 for Rolling Stone, but here it is. And I, I, I didn't forget it after I read it. And it, it opened the world of David Foster Wallace up to me. So he said he's he's riffing on on leadership. And if you're interested in the article, dear listeners, it's called, it's called um, Up Simba, like the tiger. Real leaders are individuals who help us overcome the limitations of our own weaknesses and selfishness and laziness and fears and get us to do harder, better things than we can get ourselves to do on our own. And I just think that captures so much about you know, our own ideas about people that have led us and meant something yeah. to us. It captures something about our longing for certain individuals in our world. I think it captures something about people in an organization that attract, mm-hmm. right? followers to them and that that motivate or inspire those followers to do harder better things i just think it's terrific and so i've used it over and over again it's really had a great impact on my thinking about leadership well what's powerful about it too is that it enables uh the following versus the leader's just going to do everything and i know that you're you're a big uh proponent of servant leadership uh and when you look at someone like shackleton uh, he's serving yeah. his men that way. Absolutely, know? he's feeding and watering them, literally and figuratively. He, he, you know, he's uppermost in his mind is, you know, with God as my witness, I will save them. I will bring them home. And I think one of the things that's often missed in a lot of, up to this point, traditional leadership work is that, you know, effective leaders in whatever organization, you know, truly earn the affection, mm. affection of their people as their followers as well as their respect and their trust and you know and and sometimes their fear but affection caring is an important part of effective leaderships you know effective leaders ability to to 
incite people to invest in them and their cause. And, and we're, you know, Shackleton loved his men. He never said that. He was from the macho world of the British Navy or the maritime world <laughs> of, you know, late early 20th century Britain. But he cares for them. He tells them jokes. He, he's very, he asks them about their lives, you know, one-on-one. And, and in later years, after the men got home and they recorded their stories, either in diaries or books or more often for the BBC that finally went around in the 30s and mm. collected stories mm. from the from the survivors, survivors and their family, they all said the boss, which was right. their nickname for him, right? He made us believe that we could do this, that we could survive. And so we were p- surviving for ourselves, but we were also surviving for the boss. And when you hear something like that, you realize they didn't do that because he was an ogre and they were simply scared of him, right? right? They did it because... They believed he put their well-being and their good selves right at the top of the charts. But, but by the way, achieving the mission, saving all these men, was not up to solely Shackleton. It was up to every one of them together, right? Right, as it is in any organization. So, again, to your point, followers are a big, big piece of effective leadership. So you mentioned the word mission, and I think that was also very palpable in, in these stories. Each one of these people... Uh, whether they inherited it or or unearthed it mm-hmm. or felt it within them, yeah. had a mission. So maybe talk a little bit about the role of mission <laughs> yeah. in leadership today. Yeah, well, we we you know you and I and many others have in Omnicom have talked a lot about this in different formal and informal things. I think mission is the right word, not vision. Mission. I mean, mm. you, yeah. you may have a vision, but a mission's a, a mission's more a more practical. practicable yeah. right aspect of vision. But but mission right meaning. Where's the North Star we're headed towards with this client project or with this reorganization in the face of disruption for our agency or in my mm. in my child's you know school and and what he or she is doing there? What's the mission? And the mission, in, in, I argue in this book, and I'm not I'm, I'm not arguing so much as saying look at these stories. It's clear it's going on in these stories. Right. So if you're willing to t- go with me on an inductive, <laughs> right, not a deductive right. journey, then you'll you'll, you'll mm. believe it, right? Because it's 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 manifest in these stories. The mission is always a worthy cause, and it's a cause that transcends strictly our self-interest. Mm. Because guess what? It turns out that ultimately our truly honorable and lasting self-interest is always tied up with something larger than just the ka-ching, ka-ching of some kind of cost-benefit analysis for you mm-hmm. or I. And and so the, the leader's ability to, especially in times of disruption, to articulate that mission, yeah. right? Right. Mm. Say, keep the library open longer. Right. Mm -hmm. Make sure when we reorganize the chemotherapy infusion lab according to managed care, the next, Mm. you know, healthcare regulation, we do it in a way that preserves right a patient experience that's caring and healing. Um, You know, deal with the disintermediation of different kinds of media if you're in the advertising business or the disintermediation of of data service providers, whatever it is. Save the save the, the the teenager right from from drugs. Whatever the mission, right? It it has to be articulated by the leader, mm-hmm. and and how that's articulated is a more subtle thing, and it's context specific. But it has to be articulated not once because the the greater the disruption, the more we need to hear it, right? right? Because the more noise <laughs> be and confusion over communicate, right? right over communicate. <laughs> so I think mission is incredibly important, and the word itself conveys. What I'm suggesting is the gravitas of that and that that gravitas, that very gravitas is part of a leadership, a leader's tools, part of his or her weapons. Mm. And I like in the book, uh, when you look at the missions, I also, I love the simplicity of language. So Shackleton, bring his men home safely. Lincoln, save the union. 
Doesn't get more simple than no. that. Uh, Douglas, free black Americans held in slavery. You know, Bonhoeffer, resist Nazi evil. That one I think is relevant today. Yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> they're all relevant because it's a story about authoritarian, the cre- creeping authoritarianism. Yeah, right? without yeah. question. And then uh, for Rachel Carson, save the world from man's pesticides. Yeah. So the 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 language, you know, you, you not only have to unearth it, you have to express it. And it has to be it has to be com- very comprehensible, and it can't be too complicated. Yeah. It just can't be, or people will not make it their own. They won't absorb it into their pores. The other aspect I think that's really important about the mission that a lot of people don't talk about in leader, again in traditional leadership conversations is. The mission itself can be for the leader and sometimes for his followers or her followers, a kind of gas tank. So one of the things I think, for example, that gets Lincoln off his knees, so to speak, and we know we know we have very good evidence the book tries to reconstruct these moments, that he just wanted to give up a number mm. of times. Right? Mm. Just give it up. Right. Right. Let sue for in one case, sue for a negotiated peace with the South that kept slavery intact, right? In another case, you know, threatened to kill himself because he hadn't he was just so despairing of the ability to hold the nation together and the Union to win the war. I mean, we know he came very close to the cliff and, you know, taking a diver over into, you know, just just hanging it up. And one of the things that saves him, and it's true for all the other four in the book, too, at different moments is if I give up right now, the whole game is lost. Mm. So in a, in, a, in a sense, the very importance of the mission, the way we are at times defined by our mission, yeah. you know, our, our better selves are, are defined by it. We want to listen to those. That that The very mission becomes something that, you know, kind of, as I say, in, in as I said elsewhere, just kind of helps the leader get just a few inches back from the cliff, mm. right, of despair, and then a few more inches. And again, one of the, so the mission itself becomes a fuel tank. And the, the other thing that's really interesting about these stories is it's so messy, right? It's not like <laughs> any of these people, right, like, right. you know, kind of leap tall buildings with a single right. bound and then gather their red cape around them and go, look what I've done, right? There's nothing li- there's nothing that bold, that grand, or that romantic about these stories. They're they're just, you know, by 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 a hair's breadth sometimes, are these leaders still in the game? And yet for many of us, sometimes, you know, a hair's breadth is critically important. And a lot of life comes down to I'm just going to take one small step away from the cliff. Yeah. And then I can take a bigger step in another hour or two or whatever. So, you know, these people are so much like you and I, and they're, they're so much not cut in marble. That's a very important aspect of this book. Yeah, no, their humanity is uh, it really comes through. If uh, if there was going to be a movie about these, uh, who, I don't know if you ever thought about it. Oh, but... I've thought a lot. I've, I've, it's a it's a grand fantasy of mine. I would love to. Have, I mean, we don't need another Lincoln movie, right? right. I think was, I think it's Steven Spielberg, Spielberg and Tony Kushner and but Sally Field and Douglas is a great. I think there's a, I think there's a great movie to be made about Frederick Douglas yeah. that would really help white Americans get this story get under their skin. It's yeah. an amazing story. And it's really timely right now. So Douglas... And action-packed. And it's you know, action... Because we got to see our fights. Oh, no. And so there's, we got to see that fight in the barn. Oh, we have to see the fight <laughs> in the barn that he talks is like one of the defining moments of his life. And if you ha- if you don't know the, the, the story, dear listeners, you can get the book and read it. It's a great story. But I think that would make a great story. You can imagine lots of actors being terrific as Frederick Douglass. I think the Bonhoeffer story would make a great mm. movie where you, you, if you were writing the screenplay, you'd put a lot more emphasis on the spy story part because yeah. it's so interesting. Yeah. And you can imagine doing some really interesting things with the similarities between then and now around the Nazis' rise to power. And then the Rachel Carson story is a great story. Yeah, that thing's waiting to happen. It's That is a story. And and the great thing about that story coming into a more prominent place like a film or a miniseries would be that it would, it would open all kinds of young women and girls 
they would open her story to them because yeah. it's really a story ultimately about women's power. Yeah. And and the different ways it manifests, the different forms it takes. And boy, would I love for Rachel Carson to become a hero for girls all over the world. And a STEM hero. Abs- and, a, and yes, a STEM hero. Exactly. We, we I should, love that. We should, we I would steal right that. Out. We should, we should, it's yours. We should walk right out, go down to G, GE and right. get them to fund something. Yeah. Here with Natalie Portman. I, I saw now, Natalie, and she would be great. I saw right? her in the role. Yeah. Very good. All right, so I want to move you a little yeah. bit to yeah. um, your famous case study you wrote on Starbucks. Yeah. And where do you see some similarities <laughs> between these five and Howard Schultz? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think one one very important similarity is that Schultz, like the five people in this book, had great um, – they, 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 they both nurtured – they had and then they nurtured great, great reservoirs of emotional awareness. Mm. So I argue that what that what made these people capable of doing extraordinary things, ordinary people who made themselves capable of doing something, you know, monumental, is not that they were cut from the wing of the rib of Zeus, but that they had this great sense of emotional awareness, something that, you know, folks mm. in your business, you know, are, are self-selected into to have as well. And then, But then they, it didn't stop with, hey, I'm emotionally aware. They then said, how do I keep getting better? How do I keep developing this, and then how do I use it? Every th- and, and just to give your listeners a mm. practical example of this. So one of the things that Lincoln learns, it's one of the lessons in the book, is that when the stakes are very, very high in a particular moment in which he's called on to do something, sometimes the best thing for a leader to do, actually, when your stakes are high, the emotional temperature is mm. equally high, is to actually step back and do nothing mm. immediately. Mm. This is a really useful lesson for right now, right? Oh, yeah, when absolutely. When we, we think if we don't tweet something now or get the email out, we're in, you know somehow we haven't acted. But sometimes the best thing to do when the stakes are high, the risks are high, and you're all hot under the collar is to just step back and do nothing. And he learns that. And that cul- you have to cultivate a sense of discipline mm. and detachment to get good and not taking any action right now. And he cultivates this and he comes to use it very brilliantly. I'm not doing anything for 12 hours here. And you can see this in the book. So, so these are people, Schultz is someone like these people who understands that a huge tool belt, aspect of his tool belt as a leader is his own emotional awareness. And you can see that in the Starbucks case study, how he grows as a leader through the two to three years it takes him to really get Starbucks off the edge of the cliff mm-hmm. and back into some kind of swim lane, so to speak. So that's an important piece. I think a second important piece is that Schultz is, really sees himself, and I think he does it accurately, as a servant leader. Mm. So he, you know, it wasn't about Howard Schultz's Starbucks. It was about Howard Schultz helping his people, right, discover that they, that, that, that Starbucks, that, that Starbucks could be what it was meant to be in a brand new disrupted environment, but only if they themselves felt like it was a company that they trusted and wanted to invest in. Mm-hmm. So his, one of the first decisions he makes, again, to put some uh, practical kind of uh, meat on these bones, is early on, he, right as, as soon as he comes back as CEO in early 2008, he has an opportunity to cut health insurance and other benefits to part-time employees because they're, they're so cash they're, they're so crunched for cash. They're so cash short. And he elects not to do that. Mm. And, and the reason is, you know, again, an aspect of servant leadership. He said, if I do this, I will destroy any kind of reservoir of trust I have, my people have in this company. And mm. I just can't do this because we can't turn this around without their trust. So, again, this idea that you can't get good stuff done if your people don't really believe that you work for them. Mm. And, and so that's another aspect of, I think, Schultz's leadership is important. And I guess 
last but not least, and this is something I haven't talked about in the book. It came to me the other day when I was thinking about Oprah Winfrey possibly yeah. Yeah, yeah. running for president. Because mm. as you know, I've written some. I wrote, mm. I wrote a case about her as well as a leader, and that is each of these people. And Schultz is even perhaps the best of the of, of the six, and Winfrey right up there with him. Each of these people, these leaders, learned how to toggle seamlessly between the big mission mm-hmm. and the smallest detail that was relevant. Mm. So, you know, he could be, Lincoln could be meeting with his generals talking about, you know, how we're going to, you know, take Grant, with mm. Grant, take the, take, you know, take Richmond through the wilderness campaign. And then, you know, and an hour later he could be dealing with, oh my God, we've got this problem with my rifle manufacturer in New England and, and, and I got to sort it out. So every leader knows that you're, you are always, you know, you don't get to just live in the ether of your mission. You've got to move back and forth between this very small relevant thing and the big mission. And you've got to do it without whining, without getting stuck in either place. And you've got to be able to understand that the toggling is critical because the mission is dependent on all kinds of relevant details. And all of these people got really good at that. It's, it's, it, as you said that, I was just thinking, you know, I was really lucky. I worked with Lee Clow for, you know, a long time in my career. And I, and someone said, you know, what's it like working with Lee? And I said, well, Lee's the kind of person who, when you're on a project, he is going to show you the most gorgeous shoreline. This is the destination. This shoreline <laughs> is epic. And then he's going to fight you on what's the prettiest shell. <laughs> the perfect. That's yeah. a perfect example of it. I mean, right? that's just sort of that toggling Toggle. between gr- the grand and, yep. the, and, the, and, the, and the minute. And they're, they're both important. They're both important. In fact, one doesn't happen without the other. Right. The mission doesn't happen without yeah. the, the shells. Yeah. yeah. And, and again, I think you also see that uh, in, in, you know, in, in, your, in your current book, too. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your journey because mm-hmm. uh, you, uh, you know, you're a uh, you, you, you know, you write these stories uh, <laughs> like a novel. Yeah. So maybe you have a moment to tell us, you know, the Nancy Kane story. Yeah. So it's full of disruption. So um, <laughs> I just the just the milestones. I I was, grew up a middle class kid in the cornfields of Illinois. I went to high school in in a place no one heard of outside Illinois called Bloomington, Illinois. And then I went off to Stanford on scholarship. I'd never been to California. Wow. You know, I was wearing my Sears Roebuck dress. <laughs> I I was so naive and and I was so unsophisticated relative to a lot of. Uh, freshman there, and I took refuge in a great books program, which really built the mm. humanities hard drive. Right, my my life is is in many many ways intellectually and emotionally about questions. You know, what are the really mm. meaty questions that define us? And I le- I really learned. I was that 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 hard wiring really happened in a great books program at Stanford, and then I went off to Harvard, all charged as a senior in college. I was going to go change the world and get into political. I work for a, can- a candidate and go make the world better. Mm. And this was in the early '80s, and I ended up at the Kennedy School in a public policy program, which was terrific. And then I went to work for Gary Hart as an intern. Oh wow! Through a set of through a student whose uh, husband worked for the campaign, fellow student, and I and that was ultimately a fascinating experience. I worked for his administrative assistant. And then ultimately for the person who became the campaign manager because he was testing the waters in the mm. early days for the first of presidential runs. And I found ultimately that that even pre-PAC, post-Watergate, even even then that that the that that electoral politics at a very high level really wasn't my cup of tea. I, mm. I, I didn't I didn't see the links between working for the candidate and what might happen to make the world better clearly enough. I got impatient. I thought I wasn't well educated enough and I went back to graduate school in history. Right. And again, another fit of naivete <laughs> and went to Harvard and uh, got interested in big questions again. And and then taught after I got my Ph.D. pretty quickly, wrote about the British Empire, 
in, at the time of the American Revolution, that is asking mm. what what were the British thinking in Whitehall when they started <laughs> doing things like the stamp tax? How do we explain that? Because right. talk about unintended disruption, right? And 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 that was fat. I loved being a graduate student in history, even though I didn't know much history when I got there. And then I went. And went to the business school pretty quickly after I got my PhD, and that was a very that was a crucible of disruption. I didn't know anything. I didn't know what a, a, an income statement was. I had no idea what HR meant or ROI. And so, on a journey of self education, I remade myself for ten years as a business academic, hmm. and in the process, learned an enormous amount about the guardrails and the actual traffic on the highway of organizational life and sustainability. Mm. And and in my early 40s, I was finally tenured. I was a historian. I was a woman. I was completely unusual and disruptive at the business school. <laughs> and then my life started falling apart about just a year after I got disrupt, after I got tenure. And I had more disruption. You and finally then, had your stuff together. I, finally, then... I was like, I was ready. <laughs> I was like, ready. I'm ready to be like an associate dean. And then I started getting sick and fell off the fast track. And made myself up again, and this then spent a long, long time working on this book. And here I am now in my mid-50s, um, really fascinated by how I can go on using biography mm. and the gripping drama mm. of the past to el- elucidate and and make accessible the gripping drama of the present. Yeah. So I am. this book is now, if you will, I think a template for the next set of acts, which will be more and more about... What's the great clay of history and how do we use it and shape it for people just like you, Rob? That's what I want to do. I want to make you excited about Rachel. I want, you know, when you say it's rapturous, that like that warms the cockles of my oh, heart good. because it means it means something to you and that's my job. That's Excellent. my mission. All right, so then let's talk about okay. Forgy Crisis 2. Okay. So Who's next? Well, I don't know. You know, someone <laughs> I have a couple of people pushing me to write because I live in Concord and I haven't lived there a huge long time, but I've already read more books than I care to count on. Henry David Thoreau and the Transcendentalist. Someone says you need to make those people accessible. Oh, that's interesting. Right, because we all we all go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Emerson, yeah, Hawthorne, yeah. Thoreau, you know, Alcott, yeah. you know, Louise Ann Bronson. But yeah, that sounds good. It's but it sounds kind of dusty, right? Yeah, well, yeah broccoli, right. no cheese. Exactly, no, no cheese, no garlic. <laughs> right. So, and and certainly no pasta, no ziti, right? <laughs> so maybe I need to like cook some ziti. I'm I'm, I'm playing with that. Um, I'm also playing with the idea of. Right, and but whatever I'm going to do, I'm only going to write about a few, one or yeah. two people. I'm not going to write about five. That's too mm. long. This is five small, short, yeah. you know, five stories. But it was in effect the research for five books. I, I want to do something that is a little swifter than that. I'm still going to be slow because I'm slow as a researcher and writer. But I, I want something pretty grippy, and I want it. I want it to speak very directly to this moment. So I don't want to take ten years writing because yeah. we're in a very, very critical window. Mm. Just like you've talked about for your mm. agency, you know, it's a shoot. It's, you know, and a lot of what happens in the future is going to be determined by what happens over the next two to five years, mm. two to four years. So I, I don't I'm going to write I'm going to put out some shorter things, mm. even if they're intermediate product, because I think people need all the credible, right, personally meaningful fuel they can get to shore up their muscles and moral courage right now. We need them. Yeah, Leaders I, of all kinds. And and I think you have a form now. I do. That, you know, you could probably just start to replicate. And uh, so maybe, you know, not having to discover the form right. probably took a lot of time it to It took get an there. enormous amount of time. This book started off as like with bullet points. Then it was going to be like one biography. And then it, it became this curious blend of history and leadership. I think as as long as the but I um, love doing it. It turns out I love doing it. So oh, tell do you what I'm talking. Well, yeah. that's good. Yeah. But 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 the but the language I can't stress it enough. It's a very visual yeah. 
book. It doesn't. And I listen. I love history books, but it doesn't read like, oh, this is going to nope. make a history book. It reads, and it like doesn't a read novel. like a business book, right? No. Which are more like, you know, here's what you do in this order, right? But the takeout, yeah, it's is, it's, yeah. it's a business. It's it's a what would I would say? It's it's a uh, it's a business book wrapped in a historic novel that's true, right? Or a historic novel that's true, right? Right? That's that's got a big business takeaway bow on it, right? I mean, I think you, yeah, oh, my publisher keeps saying well, it's not clear what this book is, and you need to make it clear. I think it's hard because it's a hybrid, yeah. right? Or it's a new genre. But, I think but it's, it's a new mine. genre. That, but it's I mean, mine. That, that's what the publisher should be doing. Yeah. You might need an agency, so let me know what you need. <laughs> All right. So what, at, at this point in the program, we, we ask uh, you know, our guests one piece of advice for somebody. So a listener who's out there, uh, you know, it might be an agency person. Yeah. It might be a client. It might be someone who wants to break in. But some good universal piece of business. You've had an amazing life. And uh, what would you tell somebody? I would tell, um, I would tell your listeners from all different spheres that – the world has never needed you to access your stronger self. And every time, you know, I always say that losing weight is being on a diet isn't about uh, staying on a diet. It's about getting back on after you fall off. Right. So being a great leader isn't about becoming a great leader in a single bound or buying the right books or, you know, working out at the gym X number of days. It's about trying to access your your higher self, your stronger self as much as you can. And then when you can't, trying to get at it again, right? Just like the diet analogy. And, and the really important thing is, trust me, I get paid to see the big cycles uh, of, of, of history, including the present. And the world has never needed every one of your listeners to be accessing that stronger self and spreading their wings more than it does right here, right now. Well, that is excellent advice, and um, thank you for all your advice for the uh, the classes I've taken with you. You really have transformed my career, so I can't thank you enough. Well, I need to say one thing about that for your listeners, and that is that it's such a privilege for me to speak with you because I have taught about you and your and your agency so very many times, so it's just a wonderful coming round of the circle, if you will. Oh, my heavens. I'm getting all worked up. But it's amazing. <laughs> and please write more because uh, uh, the way you write is just magnificent. So thanks, Nancy. Thank you, Ralph. You've been listening to the Disruptor Series podcast brought to you by TBWA Shiat Day New York. Craving more disruption? Visit us at tbwashiatny.tumblr.com.